to Christian Renewal Church Sunday Sermon. Thanks for tuning in to our series, Resolve, based out of our study on the book of Daniel. For more information about this sermon and other resources, please visit ChristianRenewalHHI.org. It was October 12th, the year 539 B.C., when Cyrus the Great, the, the Persian conqueror, had the city of Babylon fully surrounded. Some historians say that Cyrus has been sieging Babylon for three weeks now. The Greek historian Herodotus tells us that that Babylon falls in the night of a great banquet. That there was a great feast going on the night that Babylon falls. And that's exactly what we find in Daniel chapter 5. Is that um, the leadership of Babylon is holding this big feast the night that they're overtaken. Nebuchadnezzar died in the year 562 BC, so it's been over 20 years since the conclusion of Daniel chapter 4 when we step into Daniel chapter 5. Nebuchadnezzar, history tells us, is succeeded by a few young sons. One young boy who received the kingdom was beaten to death. And a man named Nabonidus ultimately receives the kingdom. Now, Nabonidus was not a descendant of Nebuchadnezzar, but it seems most historians believe that Nabonidus married into Nebuchadnezzar's family, making his children's descendant of the royal line. Secular history has told us for years that Nabonidus was the last king of Babylon. But Daniel chapter 5 says a man named Belshazzar was sitting on the throne in Babylon the night that the, the kingdom fell. And liberal scholarship for years ran with this fact. And they told us that the Bible was not an accurate um, historical text because everyone knows that Nabonidus was the last king of Babylon. And the Bible has made up this man named Belshazzar. And Belshazzar is not a historical figure. And this is proof of the fact that the Bible cannot be true. But Daniel, would you show that picture for me? But in 1852, um, we find this called the Nabonidus Cylinder. And on the Nabonidus Cylinder, it reads this. As for me, Nabonidus, king of Babylon, save me from sinning against your great Godhead and grant me as a present a life of long days. And as for Belshazzar, the eldest son my offspring, and still reverence for your great Godhead in his heart. Now, this is a, he's not praying to our God. He's praying to a, a false God. But this is a cylinder found in a temple, which Nabonidus mentions is that he has an eldest son named Belshazzar. And as archaeologists continue to discover and play out, we now have over 30 um, artifacts and texts that testifies to the fact that Nabonidus had an oldest son named Belshazzar, who, and, and also that Nabonidus had no interest in reigning over Babylon, and that he lived outside of the city and set Belshazzar up over on the throne over Babylon. And so this is just another case where we find the scriptures vindicated as archaeologists and historians find more. You'll still run into this idea from time to time, um, but history has disproven um, the fact that Belshazzar did not exist. But on this October night, 539 B.C., Nabonidus was already out of the picture just months before he had fled before Cyrus. And what we find is his oldest son sitting on the throne in Babylon and sieged by Cyrus the Great, the Persians, fully surrounding the city. Um, but again, Herodotus tells us that, um, that Belshazzar in the city had enough food to last him two years. And we know from history that the Euphrates River ran right through the city. And so they had plenty of water. 
archaeologists tell us that the, um, the, the wall that surrounded the city of Babylon was um, 350 feet high, which is extremely high, and that the wall was over 80 feet thick. Historians again tell us that on top of the wall, they used to have chariot races. And so Babylon's being seized, but they have plenty of food. They have plenty of water and, and nobody's running a little log into this wall to knock it down. The thing is thick, very thick. So secular history tells us that the night of Babylon's fall, which Daniel's going to give us a different perspective of today, that, that Cyrus the Great, what he did was he dammed up the Euphrates River and he dug canals to make the river split. And what he, he told his soldiers that they were to stand outside of the wall where the river comes in on both sides. And when the river got low enough, they should step into the riverbed and walk under the gate where the water once flowed. And so with this strategy, this brilliance, um, the history says that they waited till the water got about to their knee level. And the soldiers stepped into the water in the middle of the night and they went through the wall where the water once flowed and they took Babylon, what seemed unconquerable, they took it in a single night. Daniel doesn't give us the details of Cyrus's victory here. History tells us of Cyrus's brilliance. Daniel tells us what's happening in the heart of Belshazzar, the current king who reigns. And in Daniel, we see that this world-shaking event, this event that's filled with military brilliance, is also a story of an insecure leader who's grasping at what most believe is his grandfather's legacy and trying to find courage and strength in a moment of absolute crisis. And it's in moments of life's crisis, which we'll all have sooner or later, where we're your identity, your view of the world, and your view of self totally becomes exposed when the fire hits us and we start to bubble and everything in us rises to the surface. And this is the moment that Belshazzar has found himself in. He has no confidence, yet he's searching for confidence. And what we'll find is him trying to identify himself with Nebuchadnezzar. He's trying to line himself up with his grandfather, the great conqueror. He attempts to find courage and strength in his family legacy. But he does not yoke himself with Nebuchadnezzar, the humbled and repentant man of Daniel chapter 4. He yokes himself with Nebuchadnezzar, the arrogant conqueror of Daniel chapter 1. And in this moment of crisis... Like Nebuchadnezzar in his early years, he raises his heart in pride. He continues to feast. He's drunk. Most scholars say, forgive me for using this word in church, but most scholars say that what we actually have here is an account of a big orgy because that was very common in pagan worship. And so what we have is um, the king. The, it's also, we, we know from, this is hard to explain perfectly, but we, we know, for example, from the book of Esther that women weren't always invited to these kind of banquets, um, but they would have separate banquets. Do you remember that from the book of Esther? But here we have a banquet with, it tells us that all the men and women to get, were together and they were worshiping false gods and they were all drunk and they asked 
Belshazzar calls for the vessels, which Daniel chapter 1 tells us that Nebuchadnezzar took from the temple of God. There were um, utensils and cups that they used in, in sacred worship to the God of Israel. Nebuchadnezzar took them and he put them as a kind of a trophy of his victory. He put them in some vaults back. And Belshazzar, on this night, when the city is surrounded and he's drunk with courage and he is feasting and he's bolstering himself up in pride. And on this night, he says, bring me the cups that Nebuchadnezzar took from the temple of Israel. And he is very much declaring that 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 no God could stop Nebuchadnezzar and no people could out out arm him, out strength, out, out wrestle Nebuchadnezzar. And he's saying that I am from Nebuchadnezzar's loins and, and we will drink from the cups of the God of Israel. Just so you remember that not even the God of Israel could stop Nebuchadnezzar. Secular history tells us that Cyrus has this brilliant war strategy. Biblical narrative tells us of an insecure leader who's found himself in the middle of the fire. And this story being told in Daniel chapter 5 is one of broken family dynamics and of generational patterns. It's a grandson who has not learned the lessons of his father. And rather than learning the lesson of his father, he will repeat his mistakes. And rather than experiencing the blessing of humility, he will raise his heart in pride and receive another cutting down from the Lord. So let's read our passage. Verse 1. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords, and he drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the king and his lords and his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessel that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords and his wives and his concubines, they drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. And immediately the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote, and the king's color changed, and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way, and his knees knocked together. And the king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers. Archaeologists tell us that written on the walls and the plaster of the walls behind the throne where the king would sit were, would be tales of his conquest, would be um, testimony of his great victory and strength. So when all the people sat to eat before him, they could read from the wall how great this king is that sat before him. How, how ironic is it that on this wall, God writes for all the people who sit before him that today Belshazzar will fall. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. The third ruler here because Nabonidus is the first and Belshazzar the second. Again, what we learn from history. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known the king the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed and his colors changed and the Lord's perplexed. Now, in the book of Daniel, we've seen this happen three times now where a king is given a prophetic dream and no enchanter, no magician, no spiritualist is able to interpret the dream. 
Only the anointed prophet of Israel is able to bring revelation. And I just wanted to say that like Babylon, our nation is experiencing extreme confusion and turmoil. And now more than ever, we need anointed prophetic voices to rise. We need the gift of prophecy in our midst. And we unashamedly believe that God has not quit speaking, but that his people have stuffed their finger in his ears. And so we're encouraging our body. We're encouraging the body of Christ to grow in the prophetic gift. We need it. We need it. Verse 10, the queen, because of the words and the king and his lords, came into the banqueting hall and the queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There's a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom like the wisdom of gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father, the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans and astrologers. Because an excellent spirit, knowledge and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belshazzar. Now let Daniel be called and he will show the interpretation. Then Daniel was brought in before the king, and the king answered and said to Daniel, You are the Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king my father brought from Judah. I have heard of you that the Spirit of God is in you, and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in before me to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation, but they can, they could not show the interpretation of the matter. But I have heard that you give interpretation and you solve problems. Now, if you can read the writing or make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. I love Daniel's response here. He says to the king, let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, kingship and greatness and glory. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all people's nations and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed and whom he would, he kept alive and whom he would, he raised up and whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne and his glory was taken from him. And he was driven among the children from among the children of mankind and his mind was made like that of a beast and his dwelling was with wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox and his body was wet with the dew of heaven until he knew that the most high God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he wills. And this is what we'll focus on today. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all of this. But you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven, and the vessels of his house have been brought in before you. And you and your lords, your wives, and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know. But the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways you have not honored. Daniel's always spoken to Nebuchadnezzar with this sense of respect and dignity. He's been retired for something like 20 years. Remember, we start the book of Daniel. He's like 15 years old. In this text, he's in his 80s. Daniel doesn't follow a, a perfect chronological narrative. It helps to understand that a bit as you're reading. Then he says this. Then from the presence, the hand was set. And this was the writing that was described. Mean, mean, tekel and parson. 
And this is the interpretation of the matter. Mean. God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found warning. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command and Daniel was clothed with purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom, which was really convenient because the kingdom's going to fall that night. Sure, Daniel lived it up for about three hours. It was beautiful. Verse 30, that very night, Belshazzar the Chaldean was killed. Darius the Mede received the kingdom about 62 years old. First, I want you to remember that in Daniel chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar has been cut down from his throne. And he spends seven years living in the wilderness, living as an ox, eating the grass of the field. Remember that the text says that his nails grow as long as eagles' claws. His hair is matted. But Nebuchadnezzar uh, repents. Nebuchadnezzar declares the God of Israel, the Lord of all the earth. He declares him supreme. And in his repentance, his dignity is restored to him. His mental health um, recovers and he's set back on his throne. But there's something interesting here that I want to draw your attention to. Although Nebuchadnezzar repents, he does not return the vessels that he took from God's temple. He makes no attempt to restore the temple. Remember, they destroyed it completely nor to release the people to Jerusalem. He seems to come into relationship with the God of Israel. He's been cut down. He's been defeated. He's been humbled, but he does not return or restore these vessels. He does not in any way honor them. He does not in any way guard them or create some some kind of sacredness to them, but he leaves them hidden away in some vault. And you have to wonder if he leads the vessels because they were testimony to his great victories. You have to wonder if Nebuchadnezzar didn't spend his whole life in sin. And then in his old years, God cuts him down and he, re- he repents. But it seems to me that he might have shoved those vessels to the back of a vault because he still liked to walk around with people and show them what he conquered in his younger years. It seems to me that he may have still enjoyed, his pride may have still um, been tickled by people getting to see all of his plunder. Maybe he was just careless. Maybe he just kept those vessels put away because he didn't want to even think about dealing with restoring the temple of Israel. Maybe it was carelessness. But there's a strange little deception here that I want to take a minute to talk about, and I don't know that I can even articulate it well, so you'll have to try to listen carefully. Um, There's a temptation for all of us to live in the freedom that we've been bought by Jesus, that we live set free of sin. We live in the benefits of godliness and righteousness. We live blessed because of our lifestyle choices and because of walking in relationship with Jesus. But there's a temptation to, in the back of your mind, try to savor the taste of your sin. So like you you live in a monogamous relationship, you live in a relationship with just your spouse, but in the back of your mind, you still talk about the, when you're with your friends, the guys, you still talk about the days when you slept around. Like trying to savor the taste of your sin without remembering that it absolutely destroyed you. Without remembering that you came to Christ because you were broken and humble and tired and desperate. And there's this 
thing in our culture that's really strange and whatever, but like our entertainment industry loves to make movies of 30-year-old models somehow still in high school and like living sexually, um, whatever the word, having a lot of sex and getting drunk. And somehow we like idolize that period and, and, our, and our culture really wants you to. And if we're not careful, what we'll do is we'll pretend that when we... If we're not careful, what we'll communicate to our families and our friends and our grandchildren is that when we came to Christ, we came to Christ because that's what you do when you get old and get ready to settle down. That you had your fun years and you lived life and you really savored all that life had. But when you came to Christ, you were ready to settle down and have a family. And you don't communicate in such a way that talks about your sin as if it's actually sin. And even Christians in our culture, sometimes I hear Christians say, I really want my kids to be able to experience all the world has to offer. And I get what you're saying. Like, I want my kids to be able to travel. I want my kids to laugh a lot. I'm not religious. If you don't know that, let me just throw that out there. I get a good laugh out of your stupidity, I promise. Um, I want my kid. you know what I'm saying? I want my kids to eat good food, and I want them to see things that they want to see, experience the goodness of creation. But I don't want my kids to experience the brokenness and heartache that you experience from living sexually promiscuous. So no, in their teen years, I don't want them to be able to experience whatever the world has to experience. And so when I communicate my testimony, Jesus cannot be just what I did when I got old. Jesus is what I did when I got desperate. Jesus is what I did when I realized that I was broken. And Jesus is who grabbed me and snatched me out of the depths of depression. And when Jesus caught me, I was utterly broken and utterly abandoned. The enemy had chewed me up. And spit me out, man. But the love of Jesus extended to the depths of my brokenness. And he brought me out of despair. And he clothed me in joy. That's the Jesus that brought me out of darkness, man. As men, we like to talk about the fights we got into in our younger years. And you act like you were Mike Tyson in his teen years and we all know that you had acne and you looked like Gumby that big green play-doh guy trying to swing punches I got in fights too as young it was because I was insecure it was because I was bitter it was because I was emotional and hormonal by the way the teenage years do all kind of strange things do you and there's there's value in communicating that kind of stuff to your children in an honest way I'm not saying don't tell your stories. I get, I'll tell you, I get a good kick out of it. But you communicate that, yeah, I, I did that, but I was broken and I was really depressed and I was really acting out of selfishness and I was really self-absorbed. Praise God that he delivered me from that. He's so good. You be sure that as you tell your story, you don't do the Nebuchadnezzar and you don't leave your sin tucked away somewhere and leave your children and your grandchildren and your friends and your closest relatives to misinterpret your story.
when God delivers Israel from Egypt, um, he establishes all kind of feasts and all kind of ceremonies. And, he, and he'll say multiple times, specifically in the book of Exodus, he'll say, do this. And as you do it, your children will ask their fathers, why do we do this? And then I want you to tell them it's because I brought you out of Egypt. I brought you out of the land. So almost the entire like religious system of Israel was intended to cause the generations to say, what happened? Tell us what happened. And he tells Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 6 that they should love the Lord their God with all their heart, with all their soul, with all their strength. And that they should impress upon their children these truths. We're doing everything we can to be a generationally um, diverse church. We want this to be a house for your kids and for your grandkids. And we're not so stuck on style or so stuck on um, clothing or dress because we want all people to know Jesus. And we understand that that. Us having Jesus to ourselves. We don't want to do the Nebuchadnezzar. We don't want to repent and have a moment and encounter with God and leave our grandchildren to, to struggle and wrestle and be entangled with the same sin that we just got set free from. So yes, we're going to continue to be multi-generational and we're going to flex and give, but it's because we want all people to really know Jesus. Sometimes we live free from generational bondage while subtly under the surface communicating that we actually enjoyed the bondage. And instead of relieving our families from that generational pattern, we actually encourage them towards it. Hank Williams Jr. said, if I get stoned and sing all night long, it's a family tradition. I say, or it's a generational curse, man. Or that's a destructive pattern that's intended to rob you of real life and real joy. And, and again, as Belshazzar experiences this moment of identity crisis, you understand that's really what happens when the heat gets turned up on our lives. We start to question who we are. And oftentimes it's completely natural to begin to draw on the stories of your ancestors to, to, to build strength and courage. It's a completely normal thing to do. But he begins to, in this crucial moment, rather than break and pray, he begins to draw on the wrong story. So second, we find Belshazzar tragically, tragically living out the sins of his father. And, and Daniel tells Belshazzar, you knew, you knew all of this. He feasts, he engages in false worship, likely open acts of sexual immorality. Then he brings the utensils from the temple in Jerusalem, the one that his grandfather had destroyed. And he uses what is holy in the eyes of the Lord to spit in the face of his creator. And he's quite literally declaring to all present and to the city and to the world, I am undefeatable. I am the son of Nebuchadnezzar, the great conqueror, and I will follow in his footsteps. I am not concerned with Cyrus surrounding our city. We cannot be conquered. And God says, we will see about that. And he doesn't learn the, le the, the, the lesson that Nebuchadnezzar had to learn the hard way. There's sometimes in life you learn lessons the hard way. And what we want to do when we talk about generational transfer, you've ever heard the saying, we want our ceiling to be the next generation's floor. That means as far as we can go in God, we want to go as far as we can in God. Then we want to impart to them everything that we learn so they don't have to go back and relearn the thing, but we actually make some stinking progress, praise God. We want our ceiling to be the next generation's floor, but, but Belshazzar is just wrestling with the same lessons that Nebuchadnezzar learned. 
Nebuchadnezzar learned what Solomon taught in Proverbs 15, 18. That pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before fall. This is a life lesson worth learning this morning. The wise king of Israel says pride is the forerunner to your destruction. Bearing down, gritting your teeth, using all of your energy and all of your strength to prove that you're superior to this problem is a recipe for disaster. To be a little vulnerable here, I'm, I'm, praise God, coming out of a season, somebody say hallelujah, I'm, I'm coming out of a season where I was really wrestling with some fear and anxiety and things. And what I realized as I was preparing for this sermon, I realized that as I was met with fear, I responded with, I can muscle my way through this. And the muscling my way through this is actually what brings anxiety, which produces stress and which brings depression because you try to meet your problems out of the strength of your arm rather than out of the strength of your position in Jesus. And and pride says to your problem, I got this. And humility says to your problem, I ain't got a thing. I got nothing. And humility, I learned this just recently. And I'm so, you know, you, you really learn things. I guess I knew it. Humility is actually um, a supernatural tool that allows you to walk in peace in the face of conflict because humility confesses that my strength can't fix this. Humility says that my energy will not solve this problem. Humility says, but I belong to someone who can. And it, and it faces trial. And this is what we need to learn about the kingdom of heaven. I want you to learn this so badly. And praise God, I need to learn it. Somebody kick me next time. The kingdom of heaven is topsy-turvy, totally flipped upside down. The greatest in the kingdom of heaven are not the strong. The greatest in the kingdom of heaven are those who know that they're weak. Those who face their problems and their conflicts and their trials with weakness. Why does Paul say, in my weakness I am made strong? In my weakness I'm made strong. Because in humility I embrace my weakness and that creates room for somebody else's strength. And we are the most stressed, depressed, anxious society to ever live the earth. And there are a lot of things that play into that. I don't hear condemnation here. But, but some of the things that play into that is we feel like we can work our way out of the hole we're living in. But you're just digging yourself a little deeper. And sometimes you just need to throw your hands up and say, Abba, pull me out, please. Hallelujah, pull me out. You need to say, I do not have perfect insight. I do not understand. I do not see without his help. I do not know better. I'm very aware of my shortcomings. I'm guilty. I deserve death. There is no good thing in me outside of Jesus. But in Jesus, there is abundant life and abundant blessing and endless strength and omnipotence. My God, he's omnipotent, meaning that he has no lack of strength. He has complete and perfect and total power. And as I embrace brokenness, I set myself up to supernaturally encounter power. But when you embrace pride, you set yourself up to live stressed, anxious, and pride is the forerunner of your own destruction. And so we need to learn weakness. We need to embrace weakness. But Belshazzar meets this problem with the dominance of his ego. And I want to give you permission this morning to learn from his stupid.
he meets the problem with the dominance of his ego, which is exactly what Nebuchadnezzar did over and over again. And he has not learned the lesson of his father. He just reciprocates it and repeats that lesson. And this morning, I want you to consider, are you just repeating the same stupid mistakes that your grandparents and your, your ancestors did? And don't hear that harshly because we all make them. Or are you actually learning from is the bitterness that your parents walked in, is it reproducing itself in you? And is it being passed on to your kids? Or does it stop in you? Does it meet its death at the cross of Jesus? Because the generational bondage and patterns that my life was marked with. And if you're living in bitterness this morning, if you're living in unforgiveness, if you're just repeating the sins of your father and you call yourself a believer, it's not because they have dominion over you. It's because you're choosing to allow it to have dominion over you. Because Jesus has given you all authority in Christ Jesus. All authority. And the last thing is this, that in Daniel chapter 4, remember, we saw that God gave Nebuchadnezzar ample time to repent. Remember, we talked about the fact that John the Baptist said, behold, the axe is laid to the roots. And this dream that Nebuchadnezzar has, the angel says, lay the axe to the stump, meaning cut him down, but give him a little time to regrow. Cut him down, but let's be patient and see if maybe he'll repent. And he does. Nebuchadnezzar gets time to repent, but Belshazzar is cut down that very night. Belshazzar gets no space. He gets no time. God, God is not patient with him. And Daniel says, God is not patient with you because you knew. God says, I, I will not be patient with you because I will hold you responsible for the revelation that you had. I hold you responsible for the information that you had access to. And there's a truth here that we need to be aware of. Daniel says to Belshazzar, you hardened your heart and you rebelled even though you knew the story. You are guilty because you are aware. And with revelation comes responsibility to whom much is given, much is required. And God executes judgment swiftly. There's a danger of living in the Bible Belt. There's a danger of coming to church occasionally and considering yourself to be a Christian without ever truly repenting and throwing yourself on Jesus. There's a danger of being able to turn the radio on and hear Christian music and feel nice and continue to live in such a way that says, I don't actually love Jesus at all. I love the benefits of a Christian society, but I do not want him to be Lord over my life. There's a danger there because you are knowingly rebelling against him. There's a danger there because you are aware of the truth. and You enjoy the benefits of the truth, but you never submit yourself to the truth. Now, we believe that you are saved by grace through faith. That means that you, nothing you've done in your past can stop you from stepping into the kingdom of God today, this morning. Nothing. You could be the absolute worst sinner, murderer, rapist. You can be the worst of the worst. Your works do not save you. What Jesus did on the cross saves you. But we also believe that coming to the cross means picking up your cross and following Jesus and allowing him to be Lord of your life. It's not just checking a box and living however the junk you want to live and then saying somehow I'm a Christian. That's not allowing him to be Lord over your life. Paul tells us if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you shall be saved. Do you guys understand what I mean there? 
intellectual assent is, is not what brings salvation. James tells us that the demons believed and they shuddered. The demons intellectually understood and they shuddered. The biblical idea of faith is not just an intellectual assent, although it is part of that. It's an intellectual assent and then a response to the intellectual assent. So to intellectually ascend to the fact that Jesus is God and not respond is to bring swifter judgment upon yourself. So I just want to encourage you this morning that you need to really, all of us need to consider in our hearts, have I really responded to the gospel of Jesus or am I actually guilty of knowing the truth but not submitting to the truth? Because you set yourself up for harsher judgment in the future. This morning I asked you plainly, do you really live all of your life in loving relationship with Jesus? Who is your God? Who calls the shots? Who do you really belong to? There's no such thing as being saved because you go to church on occasion. And God has no grandchildren. That, that means that no one is a Christian because their parents are Christians. Every person has to, in their heart, make a decision whether they will be their own God or whether Jesus will be your God. If I could just encourage you this morning, just quickly, I just want to tell you that allowing Jesus to be your God is the best decision you would ever make because you make a really, really crappy God. I promise you, I promise you. And no, you won't be perfect. There ain't one of us in this room perfect. And yes, you'll struggle. But real relationship, real trust in him, real faith that saves requires laying all of your life down and saying, Jesus, you're Lord. And this morning could be your morning and you could turn today and you could decide this morning to really trust Jesus with all of your heart. Or you could walk out of here like Belshazzar, aware of the truth, but committed to your own pride, trusting in yourself, living for your own pleasure and headed towards destruction. So in conclusion, I just wanted to say a few more things. History is this enormous culmination of individual life stories slamming together. It's a story of families and of generations trying to learn truth and some doing better than others. And some in this great story, they turn the narrative line towards heaven and some live in a way that moves the plot towards hell. And your decision today to love, trust, honor Jesus could deliver you from bondage. Yes, it could deliver you from eternal punishment and liberate you to eternal life. But it would also shape the way that your grandchildren live. It could shape the way that your great-grandchildren live. It could shape the way that your best friends live. This decision to follow Jesus could encourage your alcoholic sister to come and receive deliverance. This decision to follow Jesus could impact your depressed neighbor and they could see what real joy is and they could taste abundant life. They could look on you and see joy that is unspeakable and full of glory and peace that is beyond understanding and your decision to live in life an abundant life could totally impact all of those around you. Or you could live for yourself. Or you could live selfish. Or you could walk past this offer this morning to really know and love and trust and live abandoned to the goodness and the power and the glory of Jesus.
Thank you for listening to this Sunday sermon. Subscribe to our podcast for new messages weekly. Visit ChristianRenewalHHI.org for more resources. We hope you have a blessed week.